millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome back to Eli Reads. I hope you got something out of that bonus episode, the extract from Flaubert's diary of his trip to Egypt. Uh, in this next chapter of Salambo, you're going to hear echoes of some of that writing, even down to the detail of crushed insects in the midst of erotic fantasy. Salambo's a pretty different kettle of fish than the prostitutes that Flaubert was with uh, in Egypt. Anne Green, who wrote a book called Salambo Reassessed, based on large part on notes Flaubert made during his drafts, but also on letters he wrote to friends and academics while he was writing Salambo. Anyway, she makes the case pretty convincingly that Flaubert sees Salambo as a bourgeois character, the rich daughter of an important man. So maybe not worlds away from Madame Bovary. But in this scene, in this chapter of sensual delirium, we're also not worlds away from the seedy brothels of Flaubert's trip to Egypt. So he, he fuses these two worlds, the high and the low. Sex, it seems, can do this for Flaubert, can perform this mingling. Chapter 10, The Serpent. These clamorings of the populace did not alarm Hamilcar's daughter. She was disturbed by loftier anxieties. Her great serpent, the black python, was drooping. And in the eyes of the Carthaginians, the serpent was at once a national and a private fetish. It was believed to be the offspring of the dust of the earth, since it emerges from its depths and has no need of feet to traverse it. Its mode of progression called to mind the undulations of rivers, its temperature the ancient, viscous, and fecund darkness, and the orbit which it describes when biting its tail the harmony of the planets and the intelligence of Eshmoon. Salambo's serpent had several times already refused the four live sparrows which were offered to it at the full moon and at every new moon. Its handsome skin, covered like the firmament with golden spots upon a perfectly black ground, was now yellow, relaxed, wrinkled and too large for its body. A cottony moldiness extended round its head, and in the corners of its eyelids might be seen little red specks which appeared to move. Salambo would approach its silver wire basket from time to time, and would draw aside the purple curtains, the lotus leaves, and the birds down, 
but it was continually rolled up upon itself, more motionless than a withered bindweed. And from looking at it, she at last came to feel a kind of spiral within her heart, another serpent, as it were, mounting up to her throat by degrees and strangling her. She was in despair of having seen the Zamph, and yet she felt a sort of joy, an intimate pride at having done so. A mystery shrank within the splendor of its folds. It was the cloud that enveloped the gods and the secret of the universal existence, and Salambo, horror-stricken at herself, regretted that she had not raised it. She was almost always crouching at the back of her apartment, holding her bended left leg in her hands, her mouth half open, her chin sunk, her eye fixed. She recollected her father's face with terror. She wished to go away, into the mountains of Phoenicia, on a pilgrimage to the temple of Afaka, where Tanit descended in the form of a star. All kinds of imaginings attracted her and terrified her. Moreover, a solitude which every day became greater encompassed her. She did not even know what Hamilcar was about. Wearied at last with her thoughts, she would rise, trailing along her little sandals whose soles clacked upon her heels at every step. She would walk at random through the large, silent room. The amethysts and topazes of the ceiling made luminous spots quiver here and there, and Salambo, as she walked, would turn her head a little to see them. She would go and take the hanging amphoras by the neck, she would cool her bosom beneath the broad fans, or perhaps amuse herself by burning synanimum and hollow pearls. At sunset, Tanak would draw back the black felt lozenges that closed the openings in the wall. Then her doves, rubbed with musk like the doves of Tanit, suddenly entered, and their pink feet glided over the glass pavement amid the grains of barley which she threw to them in handfuls like a sower in a field. But on a sudden she would burst into sobs, and lie stretched on the large bed of ox-leather straps without moving, repeating a word that was ever the same, with open eyes, pale as one dead, insensible, cold, and yet she could hear the cries of the apes in the tufts of the palm trees with the continuous grinding of the great wheel which brought a flow of pure water through the stories into the porphyry center basin. Sometimes, for several days, she would refuse to eat. She could see, in a dream, troubled stars wandering beneath her feet. She would call Shahabarim, and when he came, she had nothing to say to him. She could not live without the relief of his presence, but she rebelled inwardly against this domination. Her feeling towards the priest was one at once of terror, jealousy, hatred, and a species of love, in gratitude for the singular voluptuousness which she experienced by his side. He had recognized the influence of Rabet, being skillful to discern the gods who send diseases, and to cure Salambo. He had her apartment watered with lotions of verven and maidenhair. She ate mandrakes every morning. She slept with her head on a cushion filled with aromatics blended by the pontiffs, he had even employed baras, a fiery-colored root which drives back fatal geniuses into the north. Lastly, turning towards the polar star, 
He murmured thrice the mysterious name of Tanit, but Salambo still suffered, and her anguish deepened. No one in Carthage was so learned as he. In his youth he had studied at the college of the Magbeds, at Borsippa, near Babylon, and then had visited Samothrace, Pessinus, Ephesus, Thessaly, Judea, and the temples of the Nabathae, which are lost in the sands, and had traveled on foot along the banks of the Nile from the cataracts to the sea. Shaking torches with veil-covered face, he had cast a black cock upon a fire of Sandarak before the breast of the Sphinx, the father of terror. He had descended into the caverns of Proserpine. He had seen the five hundred pillars of the labyrinth of Lemnos revolve, and the candelabrum of Tarentum, which bore as many sconces on its shaft as there are days in the year, shine in its splendor. At times he received Greeks by night in order to question them. The constitution of the world disquieted him no less than the nature of the gods. He had observed the equinoxes with the armils placed in the portico of Alexandria, and accompanied the Bematists of Evergetes, who measured the sky by calculating the number of their steps as far as Cyrene, so that there was now growing in his thoughts a religion of his own, with no distinct formula, and on that very account full of infatuation and fervor. He no longer believed that the earth was formed like a fir cone. He believed it to be round and eternally falling through immensity with such prodigious speed that its fall was not perceived. From the position of the sun above the moon, he inferred the predominance of Baal, of whom the planet itself is but the reflection and figure, Moreover, all that he saw in terrestrial things compelled him to recognize the male exterminating principle as supreme. And then he secretly charged Rabet with the misfortune of his life. Was it not for her that the grand pontiff had once advanced amid the tumult of symbols and with a patera of boiling water taken from him his future virility? and he followed with a melancholy gaze the men who were disappearing with the priestesses in the depths of the turpentine trees. His days were spent in inspecting the censers, the gold vases, the tongs, the rakes for the ashes of the altar, and all the robes of the statues, down to the bronze bodkin that served to curl the hair of an old tenet in a third edicule near the emerald vine, at the same hours he would raise the great hangings of the same swinging doors, would remain with his arms outspread in the same attitude, or prayed prostrate on the same flagstones, while around him a people of priests moved barefooted through the passages filled with eternal twilight. But Salambo was in the barrenness of his life, like a flower, in the cleft of a sepulchre. Nevertheless, he was hard upon her, and spared her neither penances nor bitter words, his condition established, as it were, the equality of a common sex between them. And he was less angry with the girl for his inability to possess her than for finding her so beautiful and above all so pure. Often he saw that she grew weary of following his thought, and then he would turn away, sadder than before. He would feel himself more forsaken, more empty more alone. Strange words escaped him sometimes, which passed before Salambo like broad lightnings illuminating the abysses, 
This would be at night on the terrace when, both alone, they gazed upon the stars and Carthage spread below under their feet, with the gulf and the open sea dimly lost in the color of the darkness. He would set forth to her the theory of the souls that descend upon the earth, following the same route as the sun through the signs of the zodiac. With outstretched arm, he showed the gate of human generation in the ram and that of the return to the gods in Capricorn, and Salambo strove to see them. For she took these conceptions for realities. She accepted pure symbols and even manners of speech as being true in themselves, a distinction not always very clear, even to the priest. The souls of the dead, said he, resolve themselves into the moon as their bodies do into the earth. Their tears compose its humidity. There's a dark abode full of mire and wreck and tempest. She asked what would become of her then. At first you will languish as light as a vapor hovering upon the waves, and after more lengthened ordeals and agonies, you will pass into the forces of the sun, the very source of intelligence. He did not speak, however, of Rabat. Salambo imagined that it was through some shame for his vanquished goddess, and calling her by a common name which designated the moon, she launched into blessings upon the soft and fertile planet. At last he exclaimed, No, no, she draws all her fecundity from the other. Do you not see her hovering about him like an amorous woman running after a man in a field? And he exalted the virtue of light unceasingly. Far from depressing her mystic desires, he sought, on the contrary, to excite them, and he even seemed to take joy in grieving her by the revelation of a pitiless doctrine. In spite of the pains of her love, Salambo threw herself upon it with transport. But the more that Shahabarim felt himself in doubt about Tenet, the more he wished to believe in her. At the bottom of his soul he was arrested by remorse. He needed some proof, some manifestation from the gods, and in the hope of obtaining it, the priest devised an enterprise which might save at once his country and his belief. Thenceforward he set himself to deplore before Salambo the sacrilege and the misfortunes which resulted from it even in the regions of the sky. Then he suddenly announced the peril of the Sufit, who was assailed by three armies under the command of Matho. For an account of the veil, Matho was, in the eyes of the Carthaginians, the king, as it were, of the barbarians, and he added that the safety of the Republic and of her father depended on her alone. Upon me, she exclaimed. How can I? But the priest, with a smile of disdain, said, You will never consent. She entreated him. At last Shahabaram said to her, You must go to the barbarians and recover the Zamph. Well, she sank down upon the ebony stool and remained with her arms stretched out between her knees and shivering in all her limbs like a victim at the altar's foot awaiting the blow of the club. Her temples were ringing. She could see fiery circles revolving and in her stupor she had lost the understanding of all things save one, that she was certainly going to die soon. But if Rabetna triumphed, if the Zamp were restored and Carthage delivered, what mattered a woman's life, thought Shahabarim. Moreover, she would perhaps obtain the veil and not perish. He stayed away for three days. On the evening of the fourth, 
she sent for him. The better to inflame her heart, he reported to her all the invectives howled against Hamilcar in open council. He told her that she had erred, that she owed reparation for her crime, and that Rebetna commanded the sacrifice. A great uproar came frequently across the Mapalian district to Megara. Shahabaram and Salambo went out quickly and gazed from the top of the galley staircase. There were people in the square of Camon shouting for arms. The ancients would not provide them, esteeming such an effort useless. Others who had set out without a general had been massacred. At last they were permitted to depart, and as a sort of homage to Moloch, or from a vague need of destruction, they tore up tall cypress trees in the woods of the temples, and having kindled them at the torches of the Kabiri, were carrying them through the streets, singing. These monstrous flames advanced, swaying gently. They transmitted fires to the glass balls on the crests of the temples, to the ornaments of the colossuses and the beaks of the ships, passed beyond the terraces and formed suns, as it were, which rolled through the town. They descended the Acropolis. The gate of Malqua opened. "'Are you ready?' exclaimed Shahabaram. "'Or have you asked them to tell your father that you abandoned him?' She hid her face in her veils, and the great lights retired sinking gradually the while to the edge of the waves. An indeterminate dread restrained her. She was afraid of Moloch and of Matho. This man with his giant stature, who was master of the Zamph, ruled Rebetna as much as did Baal, and seemed to her to be surrounded by the same fulgurations and then the souls of the gods sometimes visited the bodies of men. Did not Shahabaram, in speaking of him, say that she was to vanquish Moloch? They were mingled with each other. She confused them together. Both of them were pursuing her. She wished to learn the future, and approached the serpent, for auguries were drawn from the attitudes of serpents. But the basket was empty. Salambo was disturbed. She found him, with his tail rolled round one of the silver balustrades beside the hanging bed, which he was rubbing in order to free himself from his old yellowish skin, while his body stretched forth, gleaming and clear, like a sword half out of the sheath. Then on the days following, in proportion as she allowed herself to be convinced, and was more disposed to succor Tenet, the python recovered and grew. He seemed to be reviving. The certainty that Salambo was giving expression to the will of the gods then became established in her conscience. One morning she awoke, resolved, and she asked what was necessary to make Matho restore the veil. To claim it, said Shahabarim. But if he refuses, she rejoined. The priest scanned her fixedly with a smile such as she had never seen. Yes, what is to be done, repeated Salambo. He rolled between his fingers the extremities of the bands which fell from his tiara upon his shoulders, standing motionless with eyes cast down. At last, seeing that she did not understand, you will be alone with him. Well, she said, alone. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In his tent. What then? Shaharbaram bit his lips. He sought for some phrase, some circumlocution. If you are to die, that will be later, he said. Later. Fear nothing, and whatever he may undertake to do, do not call out. Do not be frightened. You will be humble, you understand, and submissive to his desire, which is ordained of heaven. But the veil? The gods will take thought for it, replied Shahbaran. Suppose you were to accompany me, your father, she added. No. He made her kneel down, and keeping his left hand raised and his right extended, he swore in her behalf to bring back the mantle of Tanit into Carthage. With terrible imprecations, she devoted herself to the gods, and each time the Shahabaram pronounced a word, she falteringly repeated it. He indicated to her all the purifications and fastings that she was to observe, and how she was to reach Matho. Moreover, a man acquainted with the roots would accompany her. She felt as if she had been set free. She thought only of the happiness of seeing the Xanth again. And she now blessed Shahabaram for his exhortations. It was the period at which the doves of Carthage migrated to Sicily, to the mountain of Eryx, in the temple of Venus. For several days before their departure, they sought out and called to one another so as to collect together. At last one evening, they flew away. The wind blew them along. The big white cloud glided across the sky, high above the sea. The horizon was filled with the color of blood. They seemed to descend gradually to the waves. Then they disappeared as though swallowed up 
falling of themselves into the jaws of the sun. Salambo, who watched them, retiring, bent her head, and then Tanakh, believing that she guessed her sorrow, said gently to her, But they will come back, mistress. Yes, I know. And you will see them again. Perhaps, she said, sighing. She had not confided her resolve to anyone. In order to carry it out with the greater discretion, she sent Tanakh to the suburb of Kinisto to buy all the things that she required instead of requesting them from the stewards. Vermilion, aromatics, a linen girdle, and new garments. The old slave was amazed at these preparations, without daring, however, to ask any questions. And the day, which had been fixed by Shahabarim, arrived when Salambo was to set out. About the twelfth hour she perceived, in the depths of the sycamore trees, a blind old man with one hand resting on the shoulder of a child who walked before him, while with the other he carried a kind of cithara of black wood against his hip. The eunuchs, slaves, and women had been scrupulously sent away. No one might know the mystery that was preparing. Tanakh kindled four tripods filled with strobus and cadamamum in the corners of the apartment. Then she unfolded large Babylonian hangings, and stretched them on cords all around the room, for Salambo did not wish to be seen even by the walls. The Kenor player squatted behind the door, and the young boy, standing upright, applied a reed flute to his lips. In the distance, the roar of the streets was growing feebler. Violet shadows were lengthening before the peristyles of the temples, and on the other side of the gulf, the mountain bases, the fields of olive trees, and the vague yellow lands undulated indefinitely, and were blended together in a bluish haze. Not a sound was to be heard, and an unspeakable depression weighed in the air. Salambo crouched down upon the onyx step on the edge of the basin. She raised her ample sleeves, fastening them behind her shoulders, and began her ablutions in methodical fashion, according to the sacred rites. Next, Tanakh brought her something liquid and coagulated in an alabaster phial. It was the blood of a black dog, slaughtered by barren women on a winter's night amid the rubbish of a sepulchre. She rubbed it upon her ears, her heels, and the thumb of her right hand, and even her nail remained somewhat red as if she had crushed a fruit. The moon rose. Then the cithara and the flute began to play together. Salambo unfastened her earrings, her necklace, her bracelets, and her long white simar. She unknotted the band in her hair, shaking the latter for a few minutes softly over her shoulders to cool herself by thus scattering it. The music went on outside. It consisted of three notes ever the same, hurried and frenzied. The strings grated, the flute blew. Tanakh kept time by striking her hands. Salambo, with a swaying of her whole body, chanted prayers, and her garments fell one after another around her. The heavy tapestry trembled, and the python's head appeared above the cord that supported it. A serpent descended slowly like a drop of water flowing along a wall, crawled among the scattered stuffs, and then, gluing its tail to the ground, rose perfectly erect, and his eyes, more brilliant than carbuncles, darted upon Salambo. A horror of cold, or perhaps a feeling of shame, at first made her hesitate, but she recalled Shahabaram's orders and advanced. 
the python turned downwards and, resting the center of its body upon the nape of her neck, allowed its head and tail to hang like a broken necklace with both ends trailing to the ground. Salambo rolled it around her sides, under her arms and between her knees, and then taking it by the jaw, she brought the little triangular mouth to the edge of her teeth and, half shutting her eyes, threw herself back beneath the rays of the moon. The white light seemed to envelop her in a silver mist. The prints of her humid steps shone upon the flagstones. Stars quivered in the depth of the water. It tightened upon her its black rings that were spotted with scales of gold. Salambo panted beneath the excess weight. Her loins yielded. She felt herself dying. And with the tip of its tail, the serpent gently beat her thigh. And then the music, becoming still, it fell off again. Tanak came back to her, and after arranging two candelabra, the lights of which burned in crystal balls filled with water, she tinged the inside of her hands with lawsonia, spread vermilion upon her cheeks, and antimony along the edge of her eyelids, and lengthened her eyebrows with a mixture of gum, musk, ebony, and crushed legs of flies. Salambo, seated on a chair with ivory uprights, gave herself up to the attentions of the slave. But the touchings, the odor of the aromatics, and the fasts that she had undergone were enervating her. She became so pale that Tanak stopped. "'Go on,' said Salambo. Bearing up against herself, she suddenly revived." And then she was seized with impatience, and she urged Tanak to make haste. And the old slave grumbled, Well, well, mistress, besides, you have no one waiting for you. Yes, said Salambo, someone is waiting for me. Tanak drew back in surprise, and in order to learn more about it, said, What orders do you give me, mistress, for if you are to remain away? But Salambo was sobbing. The slave exclaimed, oh, You are suffering. What is the matter? Do, do, do not go away. Take me. When you were quite little and used to cry, I took you to my heart and made you laugh with the points of my breasts, and you have drained them, mistress. She struck herself upon her dried-up bosom. Now I am old. I can do nothing for you. You no longer love me, and you hide your griefs from me. You despise the nurse. And tears of tenderness and vexation flowed down her cheeks and the gashes of her tattooing. No, said Salambo, no, I love you. Be comforted. And with a smile like the grimace of an old ape, Tanak resumed her task. In accordance with Shahabaram's recommendations, Salambo had ordered the slave to make her magnificent, and she was obeying her mistress with barbaric taste, full at once of refinement and ingenuity. Over a first delicate and vinous-colored tunic, she passed a second embroidered with bird's feathers, Golden scales clung to her hips, and from this broad girdle descended her blue-flowing silver-starred trousers. Next, Tanak put upon her a long robe made of the cloth of the country of Ceres, white and streaked with green lines. On the edge of her shoulder she fastened a square of purple, weighted at the hem with grains of sandastrum, and above all these garments she placed a black mantle with a flowing train, and she gazed at her proud of her work, could not help saying, 
you will not be more beautiful on the day of your bridal. My bridal, repeated Salambo. She was musing with her elbow resting upon the ivory chair. But Tanakh set up before her a copper mirror, which was so broad and high that she could see herself completely in it. Then she rose, and with a light touch of her finger raised a lock of her hair, which was falling too low. Her hair was covered with gold dust, was crisped in front, and hung down behind, over her back, in long twists ending in pearls. The brightness of the candelabra heightened the paint on her cheeks, the gold on her garments, the whiteness of her skin. Around her waist and on her arms, hands and toes, she had such a wealth of gems that the mirror sent back rays upon her like a sun. And Salambo, standing by the side of Tanakh, who leaned over to see her, smiled amid this dazzling display. And she walked to and fro, embarrassed by the time that was still left. Suddenly the crow of a cock resounded. She quickly pinned a long yellow veil upon her hair, passed a scarf around her neck, thrust her feet into blue leather boots, and said to Tanakh, Go and see whether or not there is a man with two horses beneath the myrtles. Tanakh had scarcely re-entered when she was descending the galley staircase. Mistress! cried the nurse. Salambo turned round with one finger on her mouth as a sign for discretion and immobility. Tanakh stole softly along the prows to the foot of the terrace, and from a distance she could distinguish by the light of the moon a gigantic shadow, walking obliquely in the cypress avenue to the left of Salambo, a sign which presaged death. Tanakh went up again into the chamber. She threw herself upon the ground, tearing her face with her nails. She plucked out her hair, and uttering piercing shrieks with all her might. It occurred to her that they might be heard, and then she became silent, sobbing quite softly, with her head in her hands, and her face on the pavement. That was chapter 10 of Salambo by Gustave Flaubert. Thank you so much for listening, for reading this with me, for being with me on this trip through this crazy book. I'll see you in chapter 11. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.